Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. I'm your host, Ali Hussain, and this week I sat down with Mandy Daliwal, CMO at Nutanix. In this episode, you'll hear how you can architect your career to maximize pattern recognition, the value of peer communities, how a marketing council can help you avoid silos in your team, and the real reason that Mandy first moved to California. From the CMO crowd, this is How to Grow a CMO. Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. On the show, we hear stories and secrets from leading CMOs and discuss the values, skills, and strategies they use to drive growth for the biggest B2B brands in the world. How to Grow a CMO is part of the CMO Crowd, the peer-led community for senior marketing leaders. You can stay up to date with all our episodes, events, and exclusive member-only content at cmocrowd.com. My guest today is Mandy Daliwal the Chief Marketing Officer for Nutanix, the industry-leading hybrid cloud infrastructure platform. Mandy has 25 years of experience in driving growth and innovation strategies across the cloud and software markets and building high-performing organizations. Prior to Nutanix, Mandy was CMO at Boomi, where she led planning and executing the company's global go-to-market, brand presence, product marketing, and demand generation functions. Mandy, welcome to How to Grow a CMO. Thank you, Ali. Great to be here. It's lovely to have you with us. So Mandy, the first question I ask all my guests, how did you first get into marketing? Yeah, it was um, a really interesting journey. The very first marketing class I took during my undergrad was not it. I I actually disliked it. (laughs) Um, So don't go with that uh, for all aspiring marketers out there. Uh, Never start with the textbook. Uh, I ended up doing an internship during my undergrad uh, that led me into a B2B marketing scenario in telecom. And uh, I was one of the few interns that actually had an opportunity to go to a customer event, uh, an executive advisory board event, where we had an opportunity to meet with our highest value uh, customers and uh, spend time with them, understand their strategic priorities, and get to know them as individuals. Uh, and spend three days with them. And uh, that, for me, was a turning point. Uh, and I've never looked back. Amazing. So actually, the, uh, the experience of being involved in the practical side of marketing was what took you, um, got you hooked, rather than the idea of just reading about the academic side of it in the textbook. Yeah, it was the relationship building, the people aspect of it, and the ability to thread the needle to revenue. Very good. And that's a, that's a lovely piece of advice, actually. I think a lot of the time in the industry today, people bemoan the fact that people don't have uh, kind of maybe an academic understanding of marketing, but you're absolutely right. In order to light that fire in the first place, actually getting involved in it practically is probably the way to go. And obviously that's how it all started uh, from that one conference, which was serendipitous, really. And since then, you've worked at a variety of businesses from giants like EMC, and you, you don't get much bigger than EMC, to startups, um, like Boomi. So was this intentional? Was it very deliberate to work in a range of differently shaped organizations? It was very intentional. As I set out to architect my career, uh, you know, a couple of things um, that really helped me navigate 
Um, you know, tenet number one for me was know thyself, right? Self-awareness, I think, is really important. Uh, for me, uh, I'm a voracious learner. Um, number two, I'm a builder. And so having that understanding of myself uh, and number three, being entrepreneurial and really a business person with a passion for marketing, I set out to know and learn everything I could about this fascinating discipline. And not only did I want to know about the discipline and learn what I could about it, I wanted to learn how it was adapted in various sizes of business within the B2B world. So yes, intentional and deliberate across discipline as well as company size. Fantastic. And, and, and it's incredible that you got the opportunity to work at all the places that you did. Is there anything through working at those different organizations, are there any consistent threads that have influenced the way you approach marketing, whether that's people or theories or the communities you've been a part of? I think it's that learning mindset that's really served me well over the years. Um, also the teaming approach, collaboration, uh, I think has been a, a real steady drumbeat uh, in terms of folks that have worked with me would, would say that uh, playing to win together uh, is, is something that I'm a fierce proponent of. Uh, I think that has served me well. And I think energy, enthusiasm, aptitude, and that, again, desire to learn. That's lovely to hear, especially having the experiences that you've had in such a range of organizations. Are there different things that you've learned from different places along the way? Oh, my gosh. Um, yes, treasure trove of learnings, um, you know, positive and do's and don'ts, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. in the context of learning, which is what makes us who we are. Uh, and um, I think a lot of it has to do with the people, right, that we come across uh, in terms of people we report into, people that, um, you know, CEOs that lead the organizations we work with, companies that we partner with, and those executives or, or other uh, collabor collaborators within those partner organizations. Um, absolutely, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of learning within that. Um, also, uh, just within, you know, my own peers, as well of folks that I've had the opportunity to work with within the marketing organizations that I've been a part of. A tremendous amount of learning there. I'd like to talk a little bit about your current organization now, Nutanix. So could you tell us a little bit about what Nutanix does and the history of the company? Yeah, Nutanix has had um, a really awesome history actually. Uh, it is a classic Silicon Valley startup, very disruptive technology. Uh, we, I like to say, we invented hyper-converged infrastructure, which is the amalgamation of storage, networking, and compute into one platform. So we eliminated the need for three-tier architecture. So not only did we eliminate the need from a cost an efficiency standpoint, we also eliminated the carbon footprint. So it's a greener, safer way to run your data centers. That was our starting point within the evolution of the technology. So our founding team brought that technology to bear. We had a very successful IPO, and we've been riding the coattails of that. 
now that we've entered this cloud era, this company has gone through a transition from being a hardware company into a software company. And now we're entering into a software subscription business. We are now a hybrid multi-cloud company. So our software is what we like to refer to the control plane for the hybrid multi-cloud era. So we're a common cloud platform for businesses that have footprints and want flexibility to be able to run their operations across a multi-cloud environment. So that means having operations that live within data centers, living within any sort of public cloud environments, or having uh, workloads living at the edge, right? Because applications run everywhere, data lives everywhere. So you've got a lot of complexity living in all of our businesses uh, throughout the world. So today we have over 23,000 customers operating at scale on the Nutanix cloud platform. And so what we do for our customers is we give them this common language, if you will, to manage all of that infrastructure. So we're effectively delivering an underpinning to help their digital business operate with freedom of choice and flexibility, no lock-in, so they can go run their businesses in the way they choose to with the agility and security and performance that they require, knowing that we're providing that stability and cost control and efficiency and sustainability that they need. So we've delivered peace of mind so they can go excel with their business models. What a great time. Sounds like the, the right business in the right place at the right time. Um, I think it's, it's fascinating to see as companies discover more of the value of cloud, they also discover the complexity of moving towards it. Um, and that's a story that just keeps on giving and giving, I think, doesn't it? Um, right. So it, that's just one more point there, Ali. It's just, you know, we're, we're still in early innings of the cloud, right? And, and cloud's not the end all and be all. It's very important, but not everything lives or is meant to live in the cloud. Right. So I think we're, we're about to have this reckoning, if you will, on what stays, what moves and where do applications best live to be optimized. So that's what's coming. And that's what this technology is best suited for. So that's what I'm passionate about. That's why I joined the company seven months ago. And the mission we're on is to tell the world about it. Amazing, which leads very sweetly into my next question, which was actually around the role of marketing specifically in Nutanix. Um, so it's obviously a, an amazing business at a, a really exciting time in its own story. What is the role that marketing has to play for Nutanix right now? The role that we need to play is, you know, precisely what I articulated, um, you know, to get the, the awareness out of the capability of our platform, right? We're squarely into the next innings of our technology story. We uh, are now revamping how we talk about ourselves because we have new capability. So we're about to unleash a whole new brand campaign, if you will, to start to drive more awareness about this capability. We're no longer going to be a secret. So that's point one. Point two, as we drive our go-to-market, right, marketing has a role to play in how we efficiently drive demand in a modern way. So the charter of our organization is the fact that we're a very strategic component of the go-to-market engine, of which the sales organization is the other half. So how do we hand in glove partner with the selling organization to go push this business forward? 
How to Grow a CMO is a CMO crowd podcast brought to you by The Marketing Practice, a global integrated B2B marketing agency that brings together all the skills you need in one place to design and run marketing programs. You can access all our videos, reports, and a peer-led community designed to help you keep on learning at cmocrowd.com. So how do you uh, partner hand in glove with your sales organization would probably be the million dollar follow on question. <laughs> Multi-billion dollar question, actually. But, who's counting? <laughs> True. Uh, um, but no, in all seriousness, um, it goes back to some of the things that we started talking about, um, you know, as far as some of the fundamentals um, and beliefs. Right. It's aligning the teams uh, to operate against a common strategy. Uh, and a a common um, go to market model, so we're we're working on what that looks like. We're working on how we fund ourselves and align ourselves to make sure that it's not only sales and marketing; it's also product, right? So I view it as an assembly line, right? As as marketing leader, marketing is not an island. Marketing is part of a a process within which engineering builds product, product takes it and delivers it to marketing, marketing packages it, hands it to sales, sales routes it to customer, success ensures that customer implements and runs the product, adopts it, and ensures that customer has what they need to make sure that it's helping them deliver on the promise we made them, right? So how do we, as a part of that value chain, ensure that we're doing our part to get that product into the right hands from a targeting perspective, as well as from a sales enablement perspective. So it's a fairly wide charter, but we're doing it in a way that's very targeted and data-driven. And so marketing has a role to play in the brand side of this, as well as the demand side of this. And so the organization that I run today is a global marketing organization that encompasses all of the things that you would expect in a marketing organization, from the product marketing teams as well as the corporate, the demand generation, the theater marketing, corporate comms, customer marketing, all of the things. Uh, And so we align very closely with our counterparts within product, within alliances and channels, as well as within sales to ensure that we are moving in lockstep with the rest of the organization to deliver an aligned result effectively for the business. With so many challenges and so many opportunities as well for marketing today, as you, you mentioned, just a handful there. How do you help to avoid the sorts of silos that end up in duplication of effort or, or misalignment? Is there anything you do structurally or in the kind of routines or cadences that you build into your teams that help to avoid that? Centralizing uh, some of the activity where it makes sense. If we're duplicating efforts across the regions programmatically, let's build a central body that can build it once and we stamp it out. Right. So we have some efficiency and also continuity of message. So there's effort that we are undertaking there to ensure that we've got that built. We're also stepping up something I learned actually back in my days at EMC, uh, where we stood up a marketing council where we had what we called them back in the day there. And, and uh, folks that are listening uh, that were a part of EMC will, will probably smile when they hear this. We had big bets, right? Big revenue movers for the business were key strategic initiatives that the entire marketing organization was aligned to. So those big bets came out of a central body that managed them and rolled them out globally. 
So this marketing council is responsible for the building and the execution of those in a very packaged way. So we take out any sort of redundancy or any room for error in the building and the deployment of those programs because those are critical to the success of the business. Everything around that, right, there's, there's, a, there's a Pareto, right? Everything around that can be customizable, but there's certain things that are non-negotiable. So how do we ensure that we've got those big bets right? because those are core to our business. So those are coming out of a centralized body. And then the communication on the other stuff becomes easier. So that's one of the constructs that we've put in place. We're also working on rebranding ourselves and building out a new strategic narrative. Again, that narrative as it comes off the assembly line, if you will, all of our salespeople, all of our customer facing people are going to be accredited with that narrative. So we ensure that we all have the same narrative. We've got 6,000 employees globally. If we can all amplify that in a uniform fashion, we are going to have resonance in the market. So how do I create 6,000 evangelists? How do I start to break silos and get everybody singing the same song? So this is how I think about consistency and scale and silo breaking. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sounds like a very elegant solution. Um, and what you touched on just there towards the end about not just building the brand, but building evangelists for the brand through the business. Mm-hmm. I often say to clients that actually the first 80% of, of the brand is is creating the brand and the second 80% is the, the rollout, the delivery, the, the maintenance and, and then beyond. Um, so it's lovely to hear that perspective, of, very realistic perspective of how much work then goes into to actually bring the brand to life through the through the people you work with, through the, through the organization you're in. Um, and, and touching on that as well, how, how do you think about the relationship between brand and demand? Um, so kind of theoretically, how do you align those two things in your head? Yeah, that's, this is a, a really interesting conversation. I've had many folks ask me, are you a brand CMO? Or are you a demand CMO? And my answer is always both, Right there has to be an interlock of the two. You can't invest in either or, right? They feed off of each other. No amount of demand gen is going to fix a brand problem, right? And and so getting that balance right is critically important. And brand encompasses a lot more than just an ad. Brand is customer advocacy. Brand is recognition and reputation. Brand is recruiting as well. Right? It's the halo around the business. It's what you stand for. So I think about it as far as how we're perceived in the market. And yes, there's the impressions, there's the, the measurement of you know, hits to the website and all of the things that make up a brand score that's tangible or share a voice on earned media or what have you. But at the end of the day, there's the interlock. And the way... I believe, and what's been successful for me in my career to date is this integrated marketing approach. When dollars in every company I've ever been a part of, large or small, right? Dollars are never infinite. You have limited budget. How do you leverage and weaponize your dollars to serve you well, right? You need to go drive pipe. You have to have 
demonstrable ROI, but you also need lift. So you have to drive interlock on some level of, of demand and brand. So how do you get a customer advocacy? How do you get media interviews along, alongside a launch, alongside a, a, you know, a new, new product launch, whatever it might be at an event? So how do you create tentpole moments and start to create these you know, little bursts, if you will, of fireworks and connect the dots? So you start to get the interlock of brand and demand at regular intervals versus, you know, one and done uh, all throughout the calendar year. So I look for more of rolling thunder versus big bang in terms of how I think about brand and demand, but it has to be interlocked. There always has to be a strong CTA. There it also ha- always has to be measurable. You know, we live in a data-driven age. You can, you know, run something for an hour and get a result. And so... That's how I think about it in kind of the broadest set of terms. I'd like to talk a little bit, switch tack a little bit, actually, if that's okay. You grew up in a large family, and I was intrigued by how that might have shaped who you are as a leader. Yeah, I did. I'm a um, firstborn grandchild on both sides of the family. And I'm the eldest of four children in my immediate family. And so, um, you know, I was the one that was the experiment, if you will. And, um, you know, here I am. I was always the one that all the pressure was on and was the leader to thrown into being the leader at a very, very early age and the role model. So it was always a you know, you better not mess it up for the others kind of approach, which I'm sure, you know, child psychologists will say, will have their opinions on, but I think I turned out all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, the, the, for me, the positive of it was um, that I got to really practice my leadership skills and I got to practice collaboration and sharing, right? And so I think I bring those skills into the business world. Um, and also, right, on from the extended family side, I was, for the longest time, I was the only female out of all my, my brother and my male cousins. And so, you know, working with a group of men does not intimidate me at all. I'm used to doing that. And so I think that helped me prepare for a career in tech in a weird way as well. Um, so there was a lot there that just, you know, makes me feel really comfortable and um really at ease and operating in big groups and also um, just being naturally inclusive is my inclination. I love that that's the response you had to that situation of being inclusive and sharing more because I'm sure there are many in fact I've met a fair few people who come from large families who had had to have the opposite response in some ways Uh, you know basically food being stolen off their plates essentially uh, toys being taken away before they even got to them and all the rest of it. So it's lovely to hear such a positive response and such a positive outcome. Um, and how has your approach to leadership changed or has it changed at all now that you're in the CMO role? I think as I've matured as a leader um, and also um, hit my own personal milestones, right? It's less about me than it's ever been, especially right now. Uh, you know, as I, as I stepped into this role, you know, not too long ago, six and a half, seven months ago, right? You have to, you know, we, 
onboarded me on Zoom, right? We were still in this hybrid working world and I had to put together, you know, an introduction to Mandy. So I did a, you know, a word cloud and a, a slide of photos of me and my family. And, you know, it was really hard to do that um, in, in a virtual setting. But for me, it's really about the team. And that mindset has always been there with me. But, you know, it really struck me, like, how do I parlay to this massive global team who I am? Because there's uncertainty and angst. Their beloved leader is retiring. There's a new person coming in. There's a lot of change management happening here. So how can I articulate to them who I am and give them a sense of comfort in terms of the direction that I want to take the team in? And so with that, you know, one of the things that I started with was, I can't, but we can Right. So I wanted to convey to them that we're going to go do this in a way that we're going to bring the whole team along. And there is a lot of wealth of knowledge and experience and authenticity within the team that I want to be able to harness within us. The other big learning for me, and this really came out in my last role, and I've really grown into my own strength, is to own my authenticity. And I think as, as female leaders, as I've, certainly as I've come through the ranks, you know, we spent a fair bit of time trying to be like men or hiding our authenticity, but something shifted for me and I can't quite put my finger on it. It could have been my leadership team. It could have been the culture of my last company, but I was empowered to be my authentic self. And that's when my power really came to be. And that's when things really started to fall into place. And so I encourage and I lead by example. And so when I bring my authentic self and get my own thoughts out of my head in terms of my limiting beliefs, I'm able to be a better leader and show up differently and contribute better to the organization. And so that's what I bring to the team. Well, it sounds like your team are very lucky to have you. Um, You mentioned that you have uh, that experience growing up with with lots of brothers um, and then, you know, the the experience you've had in previous roles has equipped and empowered you to become the CMO you are today. Do you have any advice for other women looking to become CMOs? Yeah, most definitely. I think, um, you know, learn, be vulnerable, ask questions, go seek out sponsors, not mentors, sponsors. Right? Let it be known that you're wanting that seat. Right? I often say, like, I am very fortunate. I am who I wanted to be when I grew up. And my mission now is to help as many others get to where they want to get to. And so go find people that can help get you there or give you some advice or open doors for you within their network. I think that's really important. You know, for me, my small little way of doing it is I got my start through an internship program. So I'm a fierce believer in bringing in interns and being an ambassador to marketing. Let's give them a rotation through our organization and make sure they learn something. Whether they want to be marketers or not, let's help them understand what it is so they can make an informed decision. Right. And so let's start there so they get a proper introduction to it and set them out on the right path. Right. So so really get that education right. Um, there's so many resources available. 
these these jobs are you know understand the ins understand the ins and outs, uh, and really ask the questions and put yourself in the shoes of it. Like do a shadow program. Like there's there's lots of different ways, formal and informal. Um, and I think for the right talent, there's lots of opportunities, and especially in larger organizations for for growth. Um, so I think you know if you really want it, ask for it. Good. If you don't mind now, uh, we might move to the the rapid fire round. Sure. So these are questions that deserve much longer answers, but cruelly, uh, we ask you to answer them very quickly and immediately, if that's okay. Uh, so just five questions. So the first one is, complete this sentence. The qualities I look for in my next exceptional hire are? Learning attitude, teaming, high energy, intelligence, self-awareness, ability to ask great questions. I often say that the only problems that worry me are the ones I can't see. So I try to be open with my own team about any challenges I have, the mistakes that I make, uh, to create a space where they're comfortable doing the same. So in the spirit of transparency, what's a mistake that you've made in the past couple of weeks? Jumping to the solution too quickly. Thought I knew the pattern recognition. Didn't stop to ask a better question. And I admitted it this morning and apologized. I fixed it. Thank you for sharing that. What is something most people get wrong about you? They think that I'm unapproachable and I'm intimidating. What are the three technologies that you're most excited about over the next 10 years? I think we're just scratching the surface on AI. I think it's it's super scary, but I think it can be harnessed correctly. Um, I think chat, which is kind of a component of AI as well, text-based. I think I'm, I'm, I'm very dissatisfied with this whole customer service arena um, and waiting times on calling into customer service lines and time wasters. So that one to me um, is, is really mind-boggling um quantum computing we don't even know what we don't know yet i'm so glad you mentioned that it's one of my favorite hobby topics is trying to understand quantum computing and one day i will be able to explain what quantum entanglement is but until then i just think it's magic and, and utterly marvelous um, and finally what's one piece of advice or one idea either about marketing or about life in general that you keep coming back to I say this to my team a lot, and actually to almost everybody in my life. Put on your own oxygen mask first. Do what fuels you, and the rest will fall into place. Mandy Dalliwell, what a lovely place to end. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Ellie. I really love this conversation. How to Grow a CMO is a production of the CMO Crowd, brought to you by The Marketing Practice. Make sure you never miss an episode by joining the cmocrowd.com slash podcasts for exclusive member-only content, including events, videos, reports, and more, exclusive to the CMO Crowd. My name is Ali Hussain. You've been listening to How to Grow a CMO by the CMO Crowd. Hi.